Tonight we have an opportunity to look at uh, a very uh, familiar passage that you'll hear a lot of people use as their life verse that, uh, at least in my experience as a young person, we were all um, brought to a point of memorizing this pretty early on in life um, and repeating it regularly. Uh, in fact, it was... Uh, the uh, one of the primary verses um, in my middle school years in my children in our uh, young people's group that we had to learn right away and reviewed uh, often, and so uh, there's a little danger of familiarity that makes it oh we can pay attention or not or we already know what it describes but we have an opportunity tonight to really look at it within the context in which is given, and that context, um, and this is a little bit of the danger of memorizing verses uh, without really looking them up and studying them out, and uh, we can contrive them to say or mean some things that really aren't intended, and that's a danger that's there, and it's not really, I don't think, what's really encompassed in this verse. I think what's rather in this verse is that we lose the depth of what is being said because we lost the context. That we have isolated um, Galatians 2.20 to such a degree that we really miss some of the substance of it um, and what is really being communicated within within the verses around it. And so tonight, as we have studied up to this point, we have a chance really to uh, delve into those truths and to dig a little deeper and i hope you're ready to do that with me let's go lord in prayer before we do so lord god we do thank you for this opportunity to look in your word and we thank you for it and we pray that you might uh, guide us into your truth by your spirit and we thank you uh, that uh, you promised that those who ask of you you will um, give that wisdom that is from above and we certainly do that this evening and again we rejoice in your word and we pray that we might uh, bring it not only into the, our thoughts, but uh, into our attitudes, our, our priorities, our lives. Um, hour by hour and day by day, to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, the passage is, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh... Um, I live by, can you quote that for me? I'm trying to give you a chance to jump in every now and then. Faith. All right, and that, of course, is being juxtapositioned against a couple of other things. So when you hear um, those words of, by faith um, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I didn't finish it. Um, we are juxtapositioning that uh, faith dependence um, against uh, the flesh, living in the flesh. And by living in the flesh, what Paul's really talking about is a life that is committed to keeping the law. And that's what's being measured out here. And so let's back up a few verses to uh, really get a good handle on what's going on. Um, and uh, we're going to start in verse 17. It says, "For uh, If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. If I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So 
Again, verse 18 is very well linked to chapter 20, to verse 20, I'm sorry, chapter, uh, to verse 20. Um, compare the things which I destroyed to the idea of being crucified and um, with, in Christ, with Christ. Okay, that is no longer I that live. Um, and so to build those again, the things that are destroyed, is the idea of living in the flesh. Um, verse 20 says, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. And obviously, we can pick that up right away. Oh, he's talking about dying, not in terms of to himself, although there's a facet of that. And most people, when I, when I, when they talk about this verse and use this verse, this is usually the application they make. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, and so I crucified my will to Christ. I crucified um, my, my uh, propensity to sin, um, things like that. And it's interesting to hear the different presentations of what they are crucifying. Um, some talk about their old nature, um, their sin nature. Um, but what Paul is really referencing here is that I have crucified that old Paul, specifically that old Paul that tried to please God by keeping the law. That's what he's talking about. I have died to the law. I have crucified that. Um, it has been put to rest. It has been silenced. It has been satisfied maybe a better term, or the biblical term. And so God satisfied that law. And so um, through the law, I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. And so how is it that he now is alive and living? And he's going to talk about that here, of course, in the verse. Um, and what is it that he has died from? But let's first talk about this phrase, through the law, I died to the law. And again, we talked about the law's purpose. The law's purpose was to show us, first of all, that we're sinners. Um, secondly, that we can do nothing to get rid of that sin and of our own abilities and merit, um, that it required the shedding of blood. Uh, through the law, we found all those things out, um, and we found that the law really wasn't sufficient to redeem us. Um, and so it is by faith that we are counted righteous, and that really the law... Uh, pointed to one who would would be sufficient, Jesus Christ. And so through that law, he died. And so the he recognized that the law was not capable of cleansing him. It was not capable of bringing him into a right relationship with God. It was only purpose was to recognize sin so that I, by faith, could trust in God and his provision. And for Israel, of course, in the Old Testament, that provision was future that he would one day provide a means. And, of course, we have ample evidence that that was uh, taught consistently um, throughout God's Word from Genesis into the prophets that we are looking for the Messiah, the Deliverer, the one, the suffering servant in Isaiah, uh, the seed of a woman in Genesis, and everywhere in between. That we're looking for that one. Moses talked about him. There's going to come one after me that, that you're going to listen. You need to listen to him. He is the, the capital P, prophet. He's the one. And so we have this, this uh, description that there would come one. And so with the giving of the law, with the, with the identification of, of redemption throughout Scripture, we find either through typology or through direct reference, um, through uh, prophetic promises, 
uh, pointing to a provider, a provision of permanent uh, satisfaction of the law. And so Paul here came to that point in his life, and he's saying, through that understanding of the law, I died to the law. That is, that now that the law has been met, has been satisfied through Jesus Christ, it is no longer that which I seek to live by in order to please God. Now, does that mean the law is evil? And that's really what he's dealing with. And, of course, um, that's, he wants it very clear that in, the, in verse 17, certainly not. Uh, the law is not uh, uh, evil. It had its purpose. What is evil is, is we were evil in our inability to keep the law. But, I, but we are not trying to reestablish that which was destroyed in us. And this is what the Judaizers were doing. So Jesus Christ satisfies the law, all of its demands, and now uh, we who are who are determined to be guilty because of the law, um, look to this deliverer who has met the demands of the law uh, much well over the demands of the law, well beyond them, um, but satisfied all of those, satisfied the holiness of God. Um, and so therefore, uh, the law's purpose has been fulfilled, and now to go back to the law, having trusted in Christ by faith and receiving his righteousness imputed to us, granted to us. Um, how do we go back now and try to rebuild the law as the way of pleasing God? No. He says, we don't do that. I'm not going to go back and try to rebuild the very things that were destroyed. Christ brought the law uh, to completion. Uh, it has run its course, if you will, um, historically, and now... Uh, in terms of, of greater history, uh, we still need it today in our personal history. And it needs to make its effect in our personal history, uh, convicting of sin. Uh, but once that has been accomplished, and once we come to God asking for his deliverance, now uh, to go back to the law and say, okay, now that I'm a saved person, I'm going to go back there and I'm going to reestablish myself in keeping the law. I'm going to be zealous for the law. I'm going to keep every facet of the law. I'm going to keep all those food laws. I'm going to keep all those, all those um, cleansliness laws. I'm going to keep all of those sacrificial laws. I'm going to keep all those Sabbath laws. I'm going to keep all these 600 and some laws that are in the law of Moses. And, um, and that's how I'm going to walk rightly with God. And Paul says, you're trying to rebuild something that Christ tucked away. You're trying to drag it back out. And you're not understanding its purpose, that Christ fulfilled the law. It is done. And so when we uh, come to this, uh, you end up being a lawbreaker because you are saying that Christ wasn't enough. Let's go to, to uh, Romans. And I should have done this probably a couple weeks ago, but let me just go to Romans and just uh, read through these passages in chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6, Paul really addresses this in a much fuller place, uh, fuller way. Um, in chapter 6 is where we want to pick up. I invite you to go ahead and read. And He goes back to Abraham that it wasn't circumcision that, that justified Abraham. It wasn't any of the law-keeping. It was his belief. His, he, he trusted God and it was credited to him for righteousness. 
we come to chapter 5 and we find that it, and the focus is on faith, that, that it is by trusting that we are justified, that we are made righteous. And so he establishes all of that um, that we looked at last week, and we come to chapter 6. And again, this is going to sound a lot like the verse, uh, verse 17, right? Yeah, verse 17 of Galatians 2, you're going to hear almost the same argument in here in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us are, were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin." Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin should not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So you see, this is the contrast. And so we talk about this crucifying ourselves, and we, we associate it with a lot of different things. And I, I recognize that in the passage there it talks about that we have, died to sin in our sin nature um, but what that is referencing to toward the law that the law is that that stirs that up it stirs it up that we recognize that that is sin and 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 it points to sin and calls it that and and we sit there and say oh i'm not going to do that i'm not going to do that i'm not going to do that and then we do it and that's all of our experiences each one of us have that experience i'm not going to do that i'm not going to let that happen i'm not going to break that commandment boom it gets broken if not by our action, by our thoughts. If it's not adultery, it's lust. If it's not um, uh, murder, it's hate. If it's not uh, stealing, it's coveting. And, and so we, we break them. We, we just keep breaking them. And we um, find ourselves uh, stirring up the sin nature. And Paul here is, is seeking to drive us to understand that that this being crucified with Christ is really uh, putting to death uh, sin that is stirred up by the law. And so the contrast um, is not necessarily your will uh, before you got saved to a surrendered will after you got saved, although there is a facet of that certainly involved. And I'm not going to you know, say that that's not... Uh, part of the Christian experience, um, but the focus here is on the contrast between law and grace, between that which tries to work uh, itself into pleasing God and that which by faith trusts in God uh, as a means toward being received by him. And now how does that express itself? And so 
the being crucified with Christ, while we can communicate it as being within the context chronologically of the conversion experience, uh, it is really talking about your Christian life afterwards. You are being crucified. You, you uh, are, have crucified that. It is a, a, a decision that you have made. It is a, a reality of Christ in us um, that we did it not the day we got saved, but really we did it the day Christ died. I am crucified with Christ. There's a statement saying that that's when the law was satisfied in my life. Okay? You understand that, right? Christ isn't being re-crucified every time somebody gets saved. He's not, being, he's not re-satisfying the law. He satisfied the law for all men one time. And so I've been crucified with Christ. When Christ died, I died there. My sin stain, my, my uh, guilt was there. Um, and so he died for the world. It is sufficient for all. Um, and, and it is a matter of me identifying with that, that I, am, I was crucified there. That's where my, my uh, uh, satisfaction of the law occurred. It didn't occur today when I asked Jesus to be my Savior. It doesn't occur at that event. When it occurred is back then. And now I am simply placing myself into that act that that work of Christ is now being made to work on my behalf. And so when we talk about being crucified with Christ, most of the people identify that with their conversion experience. But it's not. It's really that you are, con- you are identifying with the work of Christ. Otherwise, your conversion experience becomes the thing you are trusting in. <laughs> and, I, and have you ever come across people like that? They're, they're trusting in this conversion experience. And when you hear their testimony, it's all about, you know, who it was and who was preaching and, and how they felt and, and whether they walked away feeling purified or not and, and whether all of their addictions had dropped away at that very moment. And that's how they knew they were saved. And the conversion experience itself becomes uh, the basis, really, of their, of, of their assurance of salvation. And Paul isn't saying that I was crucified on the road to Damascus. He's saying, I was crucified when Christ died on the cross. That's when my sin and the law's demands were met. Christ became sin for me then, before I was ever born. He became sin for me. He doesn't become sin over and over and over and over and over again. He doesn't get crucified over and over and over and over again. That's not what we're doing when we're doing the communion table. And those that make it sacraments, you know, they, they say, well, you're going to, that this is what's going on, and it's not. It is not a, a, a means of grace to receive this, this uh, wafer and to receive this uh, juice or wine um, is not a means of Christ's sacrifice becoming effectual for you. But rather, it is a trust in that which was accomplished back then. The finish of the law. The law was accomplished now for me. Because I have identified with that. I have put my trust in that event. 
and therefore I was crucified then to the law. Sin was there. And now, um, what it really, what being crucified is all about now is my living. And this he brings out in Romans that we are baptized. And, and why are we baptized? We are baptized to represent Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so Jesus Christ rose again to new life there. And so I now have an opportunity to live in that righteousness. And this counters all arguments of Judaizers that you're just letting people sin and just pray and ask for forgiveness and they know they're going to go back and sin. And that's the accusation of the Judaizers back then that Paul anticipated and addressed that we still hear today. Now, um, I do want to take one step back off of that. Um, There are those that say you just sin however you want and uh, you just come in and we'll give you some exercises to do uh, religiously and that'll make your sin go away. Uh, And they are encouraging sin. And that's not just in Catholicism. There's plenty of of that to go around. Um, And that's not where Paul is taking us. Um, And that is the accusation. And Paul says, no, that's not what we're teaching. And they're saying, well, if you're teaching people that they don't have to keep the law because the law is completed because they are dead now to it, that therefore they can do whatever they want and um, they're going to be sinning. And you're enticing people to sin through your message of the gospel. And Paul says, certainly not, certainly not, certainly not. That's not what we're doing. That's what these passages are all about. He says, we have identified with Christ's death. He satisfied the law then. The law for my members was completed then. So when was I crucified? I was crucified with Christ. That happened back then. He didn't have to be re-crucified every time somebody has to receive him as Savior. It's a historical event. And now we come to our living. He is alive today. He is living and so the, the living facet, we, we, the, and baptism pictures that, we call it a watery grave. So we were crucified, buried, and rose again to newness of life. Uh, and we quote that passage there in Romans 6. And we talk about the new life that we have, that we share that with Christ, and we walk in his righteousness, not the righteousness of the law. And so as we talk about I've been crucified with Christ, And the focus isn't on that. The real focus is on the rest, verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so that past act is what we trust in, that provision, that for Abraham, he was looking future to that provision. We look back to that provision and say, it was accomplished then. Now... I'm a living person. I've been raised with Christ to newness of life. So how are we going to live? Are we going to live in sin? No. Do we just disregard um, right and wrong because the law doesn't have any force over us anymore? It doesn't have the power to condemn you because you, it has been met for you by Jesus. Jesus met the, need, the law. So now you stand before God and you're not guilty. That's justified, Romans 5. You're not guilty. That happened at the cross. Now, how do you live? 
Well, the Judaizers say, well, now you're saying you can live however you want. Paul says, no. It means I'm free to live as Christ lived and lives now because he lives in me. And so the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He gave himself for me, and now I'm going to live for him. And so, and this is what's so unfortunate when we have Christian entities trying to force Christian morality on society, is it will never work. Um, Do you remember the moral majority? How many of you remember Jerry Falwell and the moral majority? Just Bill and I. Whoa, we're really old. Um, Liberty Baptist University, Lynchburg, Virginia, and Jerry Falwell. And he was really the, the, uh, <laughs> the generator of what has become really the conservative Christian Republican movement, political movement. Um, that's where it was spawned, and it was really at its heyday uh, back in the years around 80, uh, 75 to 80 and following. Um, and uh, they called themselves the moral majority. And they, their purpose was that they believed that, that uh, the preponderance of America's population were moral people, uh, if not Christian, at least moral people, and that they wanted uh, the laws of the land to reflect the laws of God uh, and righteousness, the righteousness of God. And through laws... We should bring society into this state of moral uh, living. Um, can you tell how effective they were? <laughs> it didn't work very good, did it? Uh, we still have the remnants of the moral majority um, within at least one party of our political system, um, but uh, uh, it didn't work, and it couldn't work. And any organization that tries to impose... Christian morals and values um, upon unsaved people um, are foolish. And in fact, I would consider them in error, grave error. Uh, I don't want a moral society around me. You know how hard it is to give the gospel to moral people? Nearly impossible. I would much rather preach to really bad sinners that know they're sinners. Much prefer that to deal with Gentiles that, that uh, know that they are uh, uh, unfaithful to their wives, that know that they're idolaters, that uh, are going and using the, the temple prostitutes and, and are doing all the despicable business practices and know it. I'd rather deal with the Zacchaeuses, frankly, the tax collectors, uh, um, because they know what they're doing wrong, and, and uh, it's not hard to uh, bring it out. But moral people, oh my, they don't need a Jesus, right? What do they need a Jesus for? They're moral. So when we try to bring people into a moral standard without being crucified with Christ and living in the newness of life that only Christ gives us, walking in the righteousness of Jesus, um, We are doing them a grave disservice. We are violating the rules of the gospel and the purpose of the law. And and we end up with a group of people in the church living morally, thinking that they are right with God because of their religiosity. Um, And 
yet on their way to hell all the while. And so Paul here is not advocating um, that uh, we do that. In fact, his statement is that if you have not been identified with the death of Christ, have not uh, walked in the newness of life in Christ, that uh, you should probably be sinning. And he's willing to list those sins, isn't he? Pretty regularly throughout Scripture. Uh, this is how you used to be, he says over and over and over again. Um, you guys used to live this way. And we're going to see that when we get to Galatians. Um, let me get back to Galatians here. We're going to get Galatians chapter 5. And, and, and he's going to talk about um, how the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. I mean, he lists them off for one, two, three verses. He's got three full verses describing them and only two verses describing the fruit of the Spirit there. Uh, so he knows what they are. Um, and he's saying you cannot overcome those by the works of the flesh. So let's not try to get unbelievers to live good lives. It's foolishness. The only way that we can see them living for Christ is if they have died with Christ. Because our flesh must meet the demands of the law first. And since we obviously know that it can't, we have to associate with one, we have to identify with one who has, so that his righteousness can now be granted to us, can be placed upon us. And the word we use is imputed, that, that it is uh, counted or credited toward us in a judicial format, which is we call justified. And so we wait upon that before we begin laying out the standards. And, and I grew up in one of those churches, uh, for a short time at least, that you couldn't get in the door if you weren't dressed properly and carrying the right Bible. So even if you wanted to hear the gospel, you couldn't until you shaved, got a bath, uh, cut your hair if you're a guy. Uh, I don't know if the girls had to let their hair grow out before they could come. Um, you had to go buy a suit or someone in the church would take you out there and say, you don't have a, you know, here, put this jacket on. You know, it's a tie-only kind of thing. And uh, probably if you don't have a Bible, they'll put one in your hand pretty quick, and it has to be the right version. And if you don't fit those, you don't come in the door. Our sister, formerly our sister church, before they left our fellowship uh, at Bernalillo, that was the way it was. They wouldn't let you in the door. If you looked like a heathen, you didn't come in. Go get a haircut and then come back. That's a declaration that says you can do something in your flesh to make yourself appear right to God. And now you can come in and worship God once you have the suit coat on, a tie, the right haircut, a good shave, washed, and uh, you look right and you have a nice white crisp shirt. And uh, we've had friends that had their boys line up on the front row looking just like that who went into rebellion. Why? Because it never touches the heart. It does, they, haven't crucified, they haven't crucified themselves with Christ. They haven't gone to the cross first. They haven't gone there and, had, and died to the law and died to sin and died to that nature. They haven't identified with that work of Christ and therefore they couldn't be raised to new life. They could not walk that road they, even if they wanted to and if they strived to. Um, Christ looks at it and is disgusted by it. 
Isaiah describes it as filthy rags that they're offering up to him. And so we live by faith in the Son of God, not by the works of the law. He, and, uh, and so in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And this takes us back to 18. So we have um, 18 correlating more strongly with 21. We have 19 and 20. This is the ABBA format. And so the whole idea is that if we have now identified with Christ's grace, giving me something I don't deserve, his work completing the law, his work giving me righteousness, his work putting that to death and giving me life, now how can I, in the new life I live, think that I can go back through the, through the pipeline of the law and now live a life pleasing to God? And so, no, we don't um, go through the law again. We go, rather, to Christ. And this is where we start to define what liberty is. What is Christian liberty? It's defined not by freedom from obeying the law. It is freedom from identifying the law as the full measure of righteousness. It's not. It's a measure of righteousness to prove to us that we're sinners, The full measure of righteousness is Christ himself. Whoa. I have to live like Christ. Yes, because Christ is in you. You claim because you identify with the cross. And now I live this life not for my own pleasure, but for the pleasure of God. And not in in a set of these rules, but in a movement of God in me, the spirit within me. And that's why when we get to Galatians 6 is going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit um, that, that overshadows the law. The law is, is a puny thing. And Christ tried to explain that to people in Israel during his day. He says, you're worried about killing people, and I'm telling you that you should be concerned about hating people. You're concerned yourself with this woman caught in adultery, and how many of you have lusted after her? You're guilty. You see, the law wasn't the fullest measure of righteousness. It was a minimal measure. It was a minimal standard that we couldn't keep. It was just there to show us that we're sinners. It was the beginning of righteousness. The full measure of righteousness is Christ himself. And so now we walk in uh, those descriptions of those very powerful words that are talked about the fruit of the Spirit, and that is really the fullness of the newness of life. We, we look also at other portions of Scripture where Paul calls us to meditate on what's best. And um, whenever I encounter people who um, are trying to find the minimum, um, what's the least I can do, what's the least I can get away with and still be on my way to heaven? Uh, I just kind of look at them and I said, you've not been crucified with Christ. If you're looking for the least, um, go back and try to keep the law. Just go be a Judaizer because don't pretend you're a Christian because it's not about doing the least. The the law is the least and you couldn't keep that. So why are you going to try to reconstruct that when Christ has taken it down? He's dismantled it. He's met its demands, dismantled it, And now you're free from that. Free to do what? To do whatever you want? No. To 
live on a level far above the minimum. And that's what new life in Christ that Paul talks about, is that um, we're not just living how we like, we're not setting aside the grace of God, um, but rather um, we recognize that what Christ did was full and complete. It wasn't partial in its value. It, It didn't just satisfy some of the law. It didn't just accomplish some of the work for us, and we have to... Uh, uh, do the rest ourselves by going back into the law. Uh, he dismantled all of it. He met all of the requirements of the law, and now we have the full righteousness of Christ imparted to us, and it's now an opportunity for us to live a life in this flesh. That's incredible. Uh, in this flesh, I can live life by faith in the Son of God. That I can trust in Him, and so I'm going to live like Him. I'm going to strive every day to live more and more like Christ. And so I'm going to approach every decision, every temptation, every relationship, and think, what's the best? I'm going to think about love, joy, peace. How can I bring peace? How can I bring joy? How can I be long-suffering, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-control? These things, there's no law against them. These things are so far above the law, they're the reason the law exists. Why do we have construction laws? Why are they there? Why do we have construction codes? I mean, the code books are huge. There's an electrical, a plumbing, um, there's, there's foundation, there, there are all these codes. Why do we live under all these codes? There's only one reason we live under all those codes, And that's because builders cheat. Dishonest builders who don't put the effort into building structures that will stand. And somewhere along the line, a builder cut a corner, and to protect the consumer from those kind of builders, we have those codes. That's why they exist. It's to protect your consumers from disreputable practices by builders. The law exists. The laws come in because people aren't righteous. They don't have integrity. And so um, if all of us lived in this manner, if all of us took the highest standard, um, we would have no reason for laws. We would have no cause to make any. Think about it. If everyone lived in a loving manner towards everyone else, would there be any reason for any laws? And if you think you can't drive the streets without laws, um, you need to go to another country, because they do. They don't have accidents. I watched an intersection in Haiti, not in Haiti, in uh, Havana, Cuba. Um, There's no stop sign, there's no traffic light. Major, major intersection. I'm sitting there watching it, and uh, the only ones that get in trouble at those intersections are people like me who don't know the unwritten laws of Cuba. And so I'm like, do I go? Do I go? Is it my turn? Do I go? And they're so used to it, they don't even stop. I didn't see anyone stop. They all just took their turns and went through there, and somehow there was never an accident because they all knew who was next. So, yes, you can. 
Why do our laws exist to protect us from unscrupulous people? And it still doesn't always work, does it? But if we all lived this way, would we need a law? If we're all concerned about making sure everyone, of being joyful and sharing joy, of being at peace, being peaceful, being good neighbors, being um, just, being uh, good, being, all, being self-control. If we all had to exercise self-control, um, we wouldn't need laws. The law's purpose is gone. Because now I am living in this new life that Christ created for me. And so, theoretically, do I need traffic laws? No, I don't. Theoretically, I don't need traffic laws. I can go to an intersection and figure out that everyone needs a turn to go and that if there's pedestrians around, I need to be careful and slow down a little bit. And so, um, in Christ, I don't need traffic laws, but Kirk in the flesh sometimes needs traffic laws. And I pretty much kind of know, you know, I, a warning sign telling me there's a big curve up, I'll know I should slow down. Um, and I have self-control enough to recognize there's a danger there and I'll slow down. Um, but I also know that they're set for drivers who don't have the proficiency that I might have and uh, it might be requiring me to slow down more than I need to. The laws are there not to fence in the righteous. The laws are there to contain the wicked. To strive to contain the wicked, even, at least. It's the selfish that we have to deal with. And so we are called to live this life far above the law to such a degree that we're not down here fussing with the law. Um, we're thankful for our food and we rejoice in God's provision, and we're going to eat it in a, in a manner that uh, is, is shows self-control, that uh, you know, I don't have to gorge myself till I'm ill, um, or any of those things, so I'm going to uh, eat uh, responsibly. And, uh, and so that's what's required. And I can do it with thanksgiving in my heart. I can do it with a thank, and so I can consume what I would. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, I now am living according to this dietary commands. I'm simply living, recognizing this body is Christ. And I'm going to treat it as that. I don't need a dietary law if I exercise self-control and seek to um, have goodness, kindness, these things in my life. If that are, are, there's no law against them because they cause us to live in such a manner. And so why go back and try to rebuild a law? It's not necessary. In fact, to do so means that Christ's work is in you isn't enough. So we're not going to reconstruct a law here. We're going to call upon you to live Christ-like. And that seems to be difficult enough. The reason most of us like laws and like churches that have them is because <laughs> we like to know what the minimum is. Right? Uh, what do I need to pass this class? Come on. That's most of our attitude towards righteousness is what do I need to pass. 
instead of what do I need to excel? What do I need to just score over 100? What do I need? What's the best? What's the highest I can go? But we're generally looking for the minimum. What's the low? How close to the world can I get and still be called a Christian? How much can I act like them, talk like them, dress like them, um, be like them, and not be them? We're always looking for the minimum. And if that's the condition of our heart, then I have to ask you, are you crucified with Christ? Because you're not living for Christ, you're living for yourself and really to get as close to the law as you can or to the world as you can. And so I call people to the best. I, I tell them what the best is. And, and you strive after that, and I strive after that. Doesn't mean I have to, I'm going to hit that every time. No, but I recognize it every time I don't hit it, and I confess that, and I. Uh, commit myself that I going to do better next time. I love David for that. He, he never did the same sin twice. <laughs> he always repented. I'm not doing that again. Um, he did some pretty bad sins, but he didn't do them twice. And so you're going to make poor choices, but um, if your heart says, I'm going to strive for God's best, you're going to not need a law. You're not going to need me to come in and say, well, you shouldn't watch that program, and you shouldn't watch that, and you shouldn't do that, and you shouldn't go there, and you shouldn't consume that. You're not going to need me to list that off. You'll be directed into that as you strive for what's best. So what is the most God-honoring, Christ-like thing I can do today? Well, I have an opportunity to go to church today. Well, that seems pretty like something Christ would want me to do and he would want to be a part of. So I'm going to do that. What does he want me? Yeah, does he want you to work hard and earn a living and uh, have enough to take care of your family and to share and give and be generous with? I think so, because he said so in his word. So you know that that's Christ-like. And we can go through every facet of our life, every decision, every priority, and measure it by that. Is this Christ living in me, or is this me living in the world? Me wanting to hit the minimum. And so it's, it's like the alcoholic trying to convince us that uh, one beer won't matter. And you know that an alcoholic can't handle one. They know, they know it. And so they're going to get rid of all of it. And so how much of the world do you really want in your life? Well, you've been drunk with the world. So how much do you want in your life? How much can you think you can really handle without it? destroying you? And that's the question. So when you talk about being crucified with Christ and living a life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, um, it is about your Christian walk in the righteousness of Christ that is far above the law, that is not a regulation-driven life. It is a Christ-driven life by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a very powerful passage. And Lord, uh, we pray that you might forgive us for all those times that we just look for the minimum instead of the best, the most Christ-like decision or attitude or response. 
And Lord, we can ask you to forgive us, but if we don't want to uh, live this way after leaving here, want to keep it the way it's been, and then we know that there is no forgiveness there. For there will certainly be no repentance and no change. So Lord, we pray that uh, you might find us living in you as you live in us and not seeking to rebuild another legal system, but rather to live led by your Spirit into the very best that glorifies your name. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.